So I, I was assigned the very last section of James, James chapter 5, and this is a way to wrap up everything that James has been saying and kind of giving a little exhortation at the end. So let me kind of do a quick recap in case this is your first time with us. I want to make sure that we all, we're all on the same page, but I don't know if you guys have ever read through the book of James in one setting. It's a little depressing. I, I don't know. Maybe when I read it, I got a little sad, and when you read the Bible, you do a lot of uh, investigative work because when you read the Bible, <clears throat> excuse me, when you, uh, you, you have to kind of guess who this person is writing to, right? So James is writing a letter to his congregation, and by the things that he writes in there, you have to guess what kind of congregation did James have? So let's take a look at this quick summary of what's been going on. So in chapter 2, he says that, hey, uh, when you speak, about certain things, make sure you put action attached to it because a lot of you guys are talking a good game, but you're not really playing a good game. Then in chapter three, he talks about cursing your neighbor. And a little bit after that, he talks about how not everybody should be presuming to be teachers because they'll be judged more harshly. Uh, he talks about boasting. We could be careful about boasting. Uh, disputes and conflict in chapter, chapter four. Uh, James talks about how um, there's a lot of quarreling and fights and conflict amongst you guys because you don't have what you want. Maybe you should ask God for what you want, and maybe you won't have these fights anymore. Um, speaking, uh, speak evil about others behind their backs. Um, chapter 5, grumbling against others. I remember, like, what, around that place, he also talks about how uh, you guys are getting wealthy off the backs of the poor, and that's not right. So when I read this, I'm trying to imagine what kind of congregation James had. Like, he wouldn't be talking about these things if these people didn't have these problems, right? So he had a tough congregation. I mean, from what I understand, these people, they, they lie a lot. These people fight a lot. They talk behind people's back. They wish people well, but they don't really do anything to help them, you know? And I'm like, man, it must have been hard to be Pastor James, especially in the first century. It was, it was really, really hard. So if I could summarize what James has been talking about so far up to the point you know, that you guys have been going through. He's talking about the danger of words. The danger of words. You guys use words to hurt other people. You guys use words to make, your, make yourself feel superior. You use words to deceive, deceive other people so that you feel like you're better than everybody else. But at the very end of the book of James, he flips it around and he says, you know, instead of using words to put people's lives in danger, to make yourselves feel better, what if we use words for something good. So in the last section, he talks about this. He talks about the blessings through words. James says, you know the words that you're using to hurt each other? You could actually use it for good. Well, how do you do that? Well, there's this thing called prayer. Now, these people knew what prayer was, but they needed to be reminded by Pastor James. So he's like, hey guys, you want to bless other people with your words instead of hurting people? You need to pray. Use your words to, to pray to God. And so we're going to start today from James chapter 5, verse, I believe, 13. And this is how he starts this section. He says, Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Great start, James. Right? But here's the thing. I want you to pay attention to the word right there. It says, anyone. Anyone in, okay, so if you guys didn't know, this part was written in Greek. In the, in the Greek language that was translated, Trans, uh, translated to English, anyone refers to one person, anyone. So of all the people who are reading this, there's that one person in my congregation that I know that's in trouble. Is any one of you in trouble? Then he says, let them pray collectively. Individual problem, collective prayer. Now, 
for those of you who are Bible nerds like I am, you'll read through the Greek and you'll be like, wait a minute, it doesn't say them in the original language. Cuts. You know, like, where did you get that? Where did these translators get the word them from? Well, I like what the NIV translators did here. What they did was they looked at the text and they didn't see the word them there, so they didn't know if it was for one, you know, if one person should pray or if everybody should pray collectively. So these interpreters, what they did was they went into the culture in which this was written and found out that they always prayed collectively as a community. Uh, as a community. So that's why they used word them here. So if one person in your congregation is in trouble, share it with the congregation and let everybody pray together. I love that. And he doesn't stop there. Next part of this verse, he says, is anyone, uh, is anyone happy? Is there anybody here, one person, anybody happy? If you are, then let them sing songs of praise collectively. If there's one person in trouble, we should all pray together. If there's one person who's having a good day, we should all sing together. We should celebrate together. Individual problem, individual praise, collective prayer, collective praise. I love that, right? And he doesn't just stop there. He goes on and talks about some of the heaviest things he could ever go through in your life, which is sickness. He says this in verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders, and I highlighted that because elders is plural. You don't call one pastor. You don't just call one ministry director. You call all of them, and they show up. And the reason why he makes it plural here is because James is super-duper anti-celebrity pastor. So what he wants is he wants everybody, all the pastors, to collectively come together and pray over the person who is sick. And if the person gets well, then in that case, you'll be like, well, I don't know which pastor it was, uh, but it, it worked, <laughs> right? I mean, like even in my church, this happens where it's like, oh, you know, you shouldn't ask Pastor Cots to pray for you when you're sick because last time you prayed for somebody, that person died. But, you know, you should ask Pastor so-and-so. You ask Pastor Dave. Pastor Dave, when he prays, stuff happens. But when Pastor Cots prays, not so much, right? He doesn't want that. <laughs> so he's like, have everybody come to you and pray for you collectively as a community. There's a theme going on here, right? So have the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. Okay. There's a little dispute among scholars about what this oil is all about. So let me explain to you what this dispute is about. James, who is a Hebrew, he's Jewish, he doesn't speak Greek fluently. He is writing this in Greek. So he's using his second language, secondary language. And as he's writing this letter, he uses the word, he, well, he uses the word alepho for the word anoint. Now, why, why is that important? I'm not just spewing out Greek words to make you feel like I'm smart, okay? The usual word that you people use is the word creo. That is when you use oil for religious purposes. This is where we get the word Christ, because Christ means anointed one, right? But here he uses the word alepho. Alepho means to rub ointment on somebody, like if they're sick, you know, you use medicine or oil, and then you rub it on them, and then they feel better. There's a little bit of relief, right? So people are like, I think James here, the debatist, He's like, one side is saying, I think James is trying to tell people to anoint people in a religious way, the symbolic meaning behind this oil. And, but he didn't use the word creo. So what's going on here? People are like, well, maybe because this is not his primary language, he, <laughs> he made a mistake and used the wrong word. But other people say, no, what James is trying to do here is he's saying, you could show up and pray for somebody, but if you don't do anything about it, then that your, your prayer is basically there's no effect there. And James talked about this in previous chapters in his letter. He talks about how, 
You know, you could wish people well, you could pray for them, but if you don't do anything about it, then that's kind of messed up, right? So here, the debate is, is he talking about anointing somebody to make them feel better, or are they, is he talking about some religious practice of anointing people for the sake of God's blessing? You get to choose which one you think is right. I'm not here to talk about one is better than the other, but I just want you to know that's what the discussion here is. Okay, <laughs> next verse. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. And he, sa- he says, so now we talked about healing. Let's talk about sin. Next verse. He says, if they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other. He doesn't say confess your sins to God. He already knows they do that. But he says, because we're talking about community here, when you confess your sins, I want you to do it to one another in your church. By the way, when it talks about confession in the Bible, in most cases, over 90% of the time, it talks about confessing your sins to one another rather than to God. Interesting thought, right? But confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. James is talking about practical stuff here. He says the church is a place where if one person is hurt, you pray together. One person celebrates, we praise together. If somebody is sick, don't just ask for one pastor to show up. Call all the pastors and have all of them show up and they will spread the word into the church and they will all pray for you. If there's a sin, I want you to confess it to the person you sinned against. That is what a church is supposed to be. He's giving everybody this motivation to pray. You need to pray. Up until this point in this letter, I talked about what you guys have been doing wrong. Now, I'm going to tell you, this is how you make things right. And the way you're going to make things right is through prayer. You're going to be praying for each other. You're going to be wishing blessings on people. That's what I want you to do. And then, the next verse, he says, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And he's so right. And if I was back in the first century reading this letter from Pastor James, I would say, you're right. That's why I call my elders to come over when I'm sick because they're the righteous people, right? Right, Pastor James? And he's like, uh, no, not really. When I say righteous people, I'm not just talking about your pastors. I'm talking about everybody. Well, here, here's an example. So he uses an example of this character named Elijah, which if you're a Jew, you know who this person is. He says, let's, let's take Elijah for example. Elijah was a human being just even as we are. Like, let me tell you about this normal, ordinary guy who bags your groceries down the street. His name is Elijah, but these people are like, but Elijah is like a hero. He's, he did seven miracles in the Old Testament. I read through the book of First Kings. I, I know that Elijah is not a mere human being. And James is like, yeah, he is. He's just like you and me. And he's like, and when he prayed, ordinary Elijah, when he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years, he caused a drought. And amongst his other miracles, he actually had ravens deliver food for him. He also uh, brought a person back from, uh, healed a person through prayer. And then he says, next verse, And again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. He restored the world to the way it was supposed to be when he prayed again. And he says, in similar ways, when we pray, we have the power to restore other people also. So pray. You guys need to pray for one another because this is how we build community. And then he comes to like a closing. This is how he closes. 
He says, my brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. And truth, if you read the entire book of James, you know that the truth is you want to be like Jesus. Because Jesus is, is about love, sacrifice, generosity, that you're selfless. This is how we should navigate through our life. But the world that's trying to influence us is saying, no, it's all about you, that you should look out for yourself. And as, as you become more and more selfish, you need to bring that person back, reel that person back into the ways of Jesus. Because when you do that, he continues, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. And the original language here implies that if there's one person in your congregation who is selfish, all about me, take advantage of people who are weak. If, th- if that person is in your congregation, eventually that will spread and then your congregation, your community will eventually be destroyed. So bring that person back because you might have saved that person's life, but also you might have saved this community. So to summarize what I, we just read together, this is what James is saying. He's saying, when we pray for one another, people are healed, we are forgiven, others are rescued from danger, and our community will not be destroyed. So pray. So pray. But if you are a skeptical person, like I am a lot of times, you read through this and you notice that he says, hey, when you have elders come and anoint you with oil, then you will be healed. And you're like, wait a minute, but that doesn't happen all the time. Wait, is James like just giving us some wishful thinking? Is he saying that when you pray, good things will always happen? That if you pray for somebody who, is, who has cancer and you pray for them, that that person will be okay all of a sudden? Like, God, I, I've, I've been in prayer circles where when I prayed, nothing happened. I've been in circles where we were praying for a certain outcome. And I have to believe that that outcome was what God wanted also. And it didn't happen. And when I realized that my prayers were ineffective, I was told at one point in my life that it was because I didn't have enough faith. It must be my fault. Is that, is that what's going on here? Because I, when I read this, it said James said that they, that person will be healed. So the question that we have to ask right now is this. What is prayer? What is it? At, when you're in Sunday school, you probably learned that prayer is just talking to God, right? And it is. It's the simplest way of saying it is prayer is talking to God. It's like, I'm talking to you. That's called conversation. When I talk to God, it's called prayer. You know, like prayer is talking to God. But it's a lot more complicated and nuanced than that. So for the remainder of the time today, what I want to do is I want to go behind the scenes of prayer. Like, how does it work? What's actually taking place when we pray? Why could James say the things that he did in this passage we just read right now? Like, what led him to that conclusion? He's the half-brother of Jesus, right? So if he says this about prayer, he must have had an inside track. Like he must have had, like, stayed up late at night when they were teenagers talking to Jesus, saying like, hey, Jesus, bro, tell me more about prayer. It's like, well, prayer is like this. And he's like, oh, I'm going to write a book about this. I'm going to write a letter one day to my congregation about that. Like James must have some special insight as to why he believes and why he wrote the things that he did about prayer. So what is happening behind the scenes? And as it turns out, prayer, well, James is informed. He knows what he knows about prayer is based on two stories. That two stories that almost every Jewish person knew back then. And probably even today, most Jewish people know these two stories very well. But I have to say that in my close to 20 years of ministry, I've discovered that a lot of Christians don't know these stories. 
So what I want to do today is I want to share with you those two stories, and maybe if you understand these two stories, you'll understand why James said the things that he did. And maybe the way we pray to God would be different. And the way that we pray for one another would be different. Maybe it'll motivate you more to pray. So I'm going to tell, share with you two stories <laughs> in two parts. And at first you're going to say, Kotz, I, I like these stories, but what does it have to do with prayer? What does it have to do with what James just wrote about? I'll tie it all together at the end, I promise you. Okay, so here we go. Part one, we're going to call this the image of God. You've probably heard the word image of God, you know, maybe in a sermon that Pastor Dave preached. You probably heard him say, you have the image of God. <clears throat> or a deeper, raspier voice, you have the image of God. Okay, so let's talk about the image of God and what people believed about it back then, okay? So, if I'm a follower of Yahweh, our God, okay, back in the day when Genesis was written, there were people who lived outside the story of God, okay? We're talking about the Mesopotamians. We're talking about the Babylonians. We're talking about the Egyptians. They also believed in this concept called the image of God, and this is how that goes. This is a story. So let's just say there is an artisan, and he believes in the many gods. They have pantheons of gods and goddesses back then, right? And they would look around and say, you know what? Today, I feel inspired to build a statue to worship my god or my goddess. So he starts building, right? Out of dust and dirt and water, and he starts making clay, and he builds this statue. And he says, because I gave it some warrior features, this is the god or goddess of, of, of war or of fertility, of whatever. And... The practice back then, outside of the people of Yahweh, these people, what they did was, after they built this elaborate statue, the priest of that god or goddess will show up. He'll walk around and inspect it to see if there's any blemishes. And once they say that this is perfect, the way that he imagined it to look like, the priest will put his face close to the face of the statue, almost like he's about to kiss it, and then breathe into the nostrils of the statue. And when they did that, they believed that the statue, now that God is living inside that statue. And they called that statue the image of God or the goddesses or the pantheon of gods. Once that statue has been dedicated to that God and they believe that this is now a living statue, what they would do next is that they would start building a temple. And they would start building this huge building to house this to God because God is important to them. And it would make it into this huge, huge ziggurat. And here's like a current picture of one of the ones in Iraq, which is where Babylon was, right? This is what it would look like. And you can't tell by looking at it now, but if you were to look at an artist's rendering of what it used to look like, let's take a look at that. You could notice that there's all this green, there's like a river around it, um, there's a boat, and there's this animal statue out here because they believe that their gods had like watchdogs and stuff like that outside. And when you walk into the center, it's the most green and most beautiful part of the temple, and that's where the statue stood. That was the culture that was outside the people of Yahweh. Now let's take a look at what the people of God, the people of Yahweh, understood the image of God to be. This is from Genesis chapter 2. The Lord... Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Very interesting, right? Instead of humans building God statues, an image of God, and breathing into its nostrils, here God creates a statue, but this statue is made out of flesh. And when he breathes into the nostril of this thing that's made out of dust and dirt, it becomes a living being. Let's continue. <clears throat> Verse 8. 
Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. So what do we know about this by comparing and contrasting these two cultures? What we discover is that the world at the time, they believed this. They believed that, next slide, humanity creates the image of God. But the people of Yahweh, what they believe is this. Humanity is the image of God. Every single one of you has the image of God inside of them. By the way, if you guys know the Ten Commandments, the second commandment is what? That you shall not create any images or idols of your God. The reason why he gave that commandment is not because he's like, I don't like your macaroni art of what I look like. He's, that's not the reason why. What, he, what he's doing here is saying, you don't create images of me anymore because I already did it. I have walking statues called humans. When people look at you, they're going to say, oh, is that what our God is like? And he'll be like, yes, that is exactly what God is like. But that's not the only thing we learn about the image of God through these stories. Another part that we learn is this, that the king of those cultures outside of Yahweh, they believe that the king or queen is the only image of God. See, these people said, we want to know what God is like. So if they believed in like the God of war or God of fertility or God of whatever, they would look at the king and say, well, if our king is the image of God, whatever this king is like must be what our God is like. As a matter of fact, the will of God is discovered through the, our king. So if the king says, we're going to go over to that kingdom and destroy it and take over their men and women and children, then they're going to think, oh, because that is the will of God. Because the king's will is aligned with the God's will. And so they're aligned. And so whatever we do, when we do what the king tells us to do, you believe that that is the will of your God. That's what these people believed. But when we look at the Genesis story, what we discover is this, that all of humanity is the image of God, not just the king, that everybody, every one of you are kings and queens. You guys are people who are the image of God. As a matter of fact, Genesis chapter 1 says this, so God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God, he created them. By the way, the word image right here in the Hebrew, this is written in Hebrew, is the word for statue. Interesting. Okay. Male and female, he created them. Another interesting fact, in this creation story, men and women are considered to be both equally image of God, which was not common outside of the community of Yahweh. Next verse. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth and subdue it. If you're using different translations, it might even say have dominion over them or rule over it. And he continues and shares with you what that looks like. He says, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creatures that move on the ground. These are words people use to talk about royalty. If you are going to rule over this world, in this way, that you're considered to be a king or queen. In the Genesis creation story, embedded in it is a story of how all of us are carriers of the image of God, right? But something bad happens. Genesis chapter 3, the serpent comes and deceives us, and he wants to bury our, our, the image of God with our own sin, so that when, you know, in chapter 4, there's the first murder that takes place. And God's like, up until now, people look at the humanity that I created and they'll say, oh, is that what our God is like? Because, you know, when you were like me, when your image of God was apparent, you guys ruled this world with the same way that I would rule. You ruled with love and sacrifice and generosity. But now that you have sin in your life, when you rule this earth, you do it through murder, conquering. You do it through 
like this is not the image of God. So God would be like, don't look at them because that's not what I'm like. By the way, the other commandment about do not use the Lord's name in vain, that commandment is really about this. That when you, it's not about using God's name in a curse word. That's, that's not what that commandment's about. It's about how when we go out into the world, we are carrying God's name with us. We are the image bearers of God. And when we go out there and do things that God wouldn't do, we are misrepresenting him. So that's what that commandment's about. So he's saying this. He's saying, you guys are royalty. You guys are the carriers of the image of God. But now all that image is buried under all this sin. So the point here is this, that the true image of God is buried deep within humanity. Every single one of you guys, you guys have the image of God. But for some of you, it's buried a little deeper in sin than other people. So when people look at you, they're not seeing a clear image of what our God is like. And then he says, prayer is a thing, or more specifically, repentance is a thing that reveals this, that, that uncovers the sin in our lives. As a matter of fact, in the Hebrew word for repentance, teshuva means to return, return back to the way that God's image was inside of you. So that's the first story. The first story is about the image of God that we all have, but it's buried deep inside of us because sin has covered it up. So that's the first story. The second story, remember, this has to do with prayer. We'll come back to that in a second, okay? The second part of the story is called the here but not yet. And you're like, what does that mean? And let me just say, this is an official term in theology. <laughs> a bunch of smart people got together and said, what should we call this? And they're like, oh, we'll call it the here but not yet. It's like, are you sure you can come up with a better term? It's like, oh, you'll see why they use this term in a second. Okay, so I'm going to do a little graphic stuff on the screen and so you understand what's going on. Okay, so this white line right here is basically the Old Testament timeline. The Jews call this the world, the present age, the age of sin, and the age of death. That's what they called this, Okay. They believed, next slide, that at the end of time, the Messiah right there will show up. And when the Messiah shows up, he will start this new age called, and there's different terms for this, they call it heaven, they call it the kingdom of God, age to come, or eternal life. They have many, they have more than just those four terms for it. So they were eagerly waiting for the Messiah to show up so that the world of suffering and the world of tears and pain, all that and disease will end and as soon as the Messiah shows up, he'll start a brand new world, a place where there is no more tears and no more pain and, no, you know, and where everybody gets along. There's no more people who are sidelines. Everybody comes together and sings Kumbaya, right? That's what they believe. But as Christians, we believe a different version of this story. This is what we believe. So, and it's similar. It starts with that same white line, right? The world, the present age, the age of sin, the age of death. But in our version of this story, we don't believe the Messiah showed up at the end of time. That Jesus decided, you know what, I can't wait. I'm going to come a little early. So next slide. We believe that the Messiah showed up in the middle of history. He showed up about 2,000 years ago from our perspective. And because of that, next slide, he's going to bring along with him the age to come, the eternal life, kingdom of God. He's going to bring heaven in the middle and on top of the one that we're living in right now. So, we have this, next slide, we have this overlap right there. We are people who are living in this overlap, and they call this the here but not yet. Because we are completely, like, if you're like, when is God's heaven, when is it going to come here on this earth? And you're like, it's already here. It's like, really? Well, not completely. Like, that's going to happen, next slide, over here. 
at the end when Messiah comes back, and then this world age will end, and from there on we'll be completely living in the age to come where there's no more tears, right? But right now, as you and I are right here, right now, we are living in a time where there's an overlap. We're living in a world of death, pain, and, you know, sin, and all that kind of stuff, and that age hasn't ended yet, but we are also living in an age where there's heaven on earth. Every once in a while, you'll see glimpses of God working, like you prayed and something, somebody got healed, like, whoa, that was a little bit of heaven that just popped up in the, in the midst of this old broken one. So this is the story that they believed, okay? So they believe that Christians are people who dwell in both realms, because the people who are living in the white line, they would say, there is no heaven on earth. There, no, it doesn't exist. But the people who are followers of Jesus would say, no, we've seen it. We've seen Jesus resurrect from the dead. We've seen him heal people. We've seen him do something that took the people who are on the outside and brought him to the inside. Like, there's some amazing stuff happening right now, and there's no other way to explain it except that a little bit of heaven is spilling into this earth right now, this broken, sinful earth right now. So prayer is basically our way of saying, I know we're living on this white line right now, but we're going to reach out to the yellow line and bring some of that heaven to patch the stuff that's broken here on this earth. Okay, so there's a better way of putting this. My favorite scholar, N.T. Wright, this is how he puts it. God's new time has broken into the continuing time of this sad old world. This is what we just talked about. Then he continues, so that the person praying stands with one foot in the place of trouble, sickness, and sin. That's the list that James just gave us, and with the other foot in the place of healing, forgiveness, and hope. And then he concludes, prayer then brings the latter to bear on the former. Christians are people who have one foot in the age to come and the other foot in the age of sin. And we are the bridge that connects the two together. So when we pray, what we're doing is we're saying, God, can you bring some of that goodness into this broken world? In this perfect world that you have started a few 2,000 years ago, like you are healing people who are sick. In this old broken world, we have people who are sick. Can you bring some of that into this world? This is what James understood prayer to be. He was wanting to bring more heaven on earth. This is why when Jesus was asked, how do you pray? He says, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. This is a very fundamental belief that Jesus held that spilled over to James. So, when we pray, these are some of the things that happen. When we pray, number one, we are aligning our will with God. This is the imago Dei, or the image of God thing I talked about. We have the image of God inside of us, but it's buried deep within us with sin, right? And so what, what we do is, with Jesus, he starts to take the sin away from our lives, we become more, the image of God starts to be revealed more and more inside of us the more we pray, the more that we, we, we confess, and the more that God shapes us, the more he molds us, more and more that sin gets pushed out of the way, and the image of God starts to rise. And the more that the image of God starts to rise in our lives, we say, you know, my heart's breaking over this thing over here. God, is it breaking your heart too? Because if it is, we're aligned like the king and the image of God, right? Like, we're aligned. Or maybe sometimes they'll say, God, um, I really think this should happen. What do you think? And God's like, that's not part of me. That's, that's, not, that's you. That's not me. He's like, okay, then there's some sin in my life that I need to deal with because I'm not aligned with God right now. There's a famous prayer that Jesus prayed where he says, God, and he likened his suffering like a cup of wine. And he says, I do not want to drink this cup. Is there any way that you could take this away from me? 
And Jesus, being fully human and human God, fully, fully human and fully God, he talks to his father and says, Father, this is what I want. Is this what you want? Because right now, I really want this cup to pass. And God says, no. And then Jesus responds, says, well, then your will be done, not mine. So that's the first part of prayer, how they understood prayer, is that first, we are aligning ourselves with God's will. We're trying to see how much of the image of God inside of us is covered in sin. Then the second part is that we are partnering with God to bring his kingdom into ours. So once we establish, like, so what I'm feeling right now is the image of God inside of me, right, God? And God says, yes, that is the image of me inside of you that's yearning for these things. Like, good. Now that we know that we're aligned, I want to pray that heaven will come here on earth and we will heal this person or that this would happen. Or in some cases, God would say, like, yeah, sure, great, you're praying for it, but why don't you go and do it yourself? That's what James would say, because James is big on praying and actually doing something about it, right? So James is talking about how we need to develop our community. We need to pray for healing. We need to pray for forgiveness. We need to pray for all these things. And he says, according to James's image of God that's inside of him, he says, that is straight from God. And so we should be praying for people to be healed. We should be praying for people to be forgiven. We should be praying for the community to be well. But the fact is, we still have one foot on earth in this broken world. So not every time we pray is it going to happen. Because sometimes, maybe it's because our will is not aligned with God's. Maybe the things that we're asking for is from coming from a very, very selfish place. Maybe it's because you are one of the same things that God wants, but because we're living in a broken world, he can't do anything about it. So like I said, there's two parts, two stories that these people understand to be true. One is that we are image bearers of God that is covered with sin, and we have to sort that sin out of the way so that the image of God comes out. And so because of that, we are now praying for the things that God wants. And the second thing is that we are living in a time where there's an overlap, the here but not yet. By the way, in the Gospels, when people ask, hey, is the kingdom of God here? Sometimes they say, yes, it is here. And sometimes they'll say, it is near. The reason why they give two different answers is because they believe that it's here but not yet. <laughs> so I know it's confusing, but that's what the theologians came up with. So this is why it's so important that we keep praying, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because we want his will to be done, and we want it done here on this earth right now. So, I have two applications for you guys today. Number one is a question, which is this. When you pray, how often do you consider God's perspective on the matter? Because I come from a world where I've heard stories of people say, you know, I was praying for my mother. She's very sick. And we all prayed. And she passed away. And on the same week, I would hear somebody say, I was praying for a parking spot. And it opened up, and it was on a Sunday at Costco. And you're like, wow, that's a miracle, right? But it's like, are we to believe that God cares more about a parking spot at Costco than, than somebody's life? Right? And so we have to say, like, well, what is God's will in all this? And sometimes we might not, we might not like or agree with God's will. There's a, a, a a commentator that I read about this passage and said that, you know, if we were to believe that every time you pray, it will always happen, then it'd be hypocritical for James because by the time that James wrote this letter, his father Joseph was already gone. Like, he could have been praying for him, you know, but so here is like the question, the key, the key question is we have to consider God's perspective on the matter and we might not like it, 
And if we don't like it, we have to consider, is there sin that's covering the image of God inside of us? So that's the first one. The second one is this. It's more like an action step. Pray every week, this, every day this week, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And not only that, I would say that James would add on a little caveat to this second step. He would say, and when you do pray, what are you going to do about it? Are you just going to pray for somebody and wish them well and send them home and not do anything about it? Or are you going to actually do something about it? Because James' fundamental understanding, James' letter, is that James wants the church to participate. He doesn't want you to just be a person who's like, it's just me and God, me and God, me and God. So if something's happening here, I'll pray for you, but it's still about me and God. What James is really saying here is, it is about me and God, but my relationship with God is totally dependent on how I treat you. So I need to participate in the life of my community. I need to participate in the healing of some people in my life. I need to participate in grieving with other people if they're having a tough time. I need to participate with people if they are celebrating something good in their lives. So, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and what part can I play in that? Prayer is very mysterious, isn't it? Many of us have prayed over and over again for certain things, and it didn't happen. But we don't give up on praying, and that's what James would want for us. He would say, even though your success rate of your prayer requests are probably low, you don't give up on praying because your prayers could bring people together. Sometimes your will is aligned with God, and that he's going to make it happen. So do not give up on praying. Instead of using 30 minutes of your day bad-mouthing other people in your congregation, use that 30 minutes to pray for somebody in your congregation. Imagine what would happen if everybody here committed to that. If everybody here, just for one week, for 30 minutes a day, you said, you know what, instead of thinking bad thoughts about other people, instead of talking or uh, bad things about other people or starting gossip, I'm going to spend that 30 minutes just praying for people in my congregation. Imagine the changes it could bring into this congregation. Amen? Yeah, here, let me pray for you guys. Jesus, we thank you so much that you are eager to bring more heaven here on this earth. And it is foolish for us to think that we know your ways. So for all the times that we ask for the wrong things, for all the times that we said, God, I know that this is what you want, so I'm just going to pray for it and claim it, only to find out later that it wasn't part of your will. Lord, we are so sorry for just boasting about thinking that we know better than you. So Lord, would you continue to change our hearts? Would you continue to Move the sin in our lives out of the way so that your image becomes more and more revealed so that our will is aligned with yours. And once that happens, Lord, would you start pouring out heaven onto this earth? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.